We're in Galatians chapter 3 this morning, 3 and into chapter 4 if you want to turn there. I'll be reading beginning in verse 26. Scripture says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles. Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you, And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I am with you. My dear dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. The Galatians were failing to understand or appreciate what they already had in Christ. And because of that, they were in danger of turning their backs to grace and returning to their old way of life, to relying on the law, which in verse 9 it refers to as weak and miserable principles. He calls it weak and miserable because it tells us what we are and are not supposed to do, but it offers no help. As Paul said in Colossians 2.23, it lacks any real value in restraining sensual indulgences. We can't have it both ways. It's either grace or it's effort. There's no half measures. If we're going to rely on the law, he had said in verse 12 of chapter 3, then we have to go the whole way and live by it all, not just what we like or find easy. Now, for many years, Ted Engstrom served as head of 
first Youth for Christ and then for World Vision International, he once wrote about a man named Joe. Joe was not a nice man. When he got married, it was all about him, his happiness, with little thought about his wife and how to make her happy. As far as he was concerned, she was only there to serve and care for his needs. And after three years of marriage, it just wasn't working. He wasn't happy, and he decided he had had enough of her. He thought of her as unattractive, overweight, boring, someone he certainly didn't want to spend the rest of his life with. So Joe decided to divorce her. But before he did so, he wanted to make sure she was unhappy as he was. And before he served her the papers, Joe made an appointment with a psychologist for the specific purpose of finding out how to make life as difficult as possible for his soon-to-be former wife. The psychologist listened to Joe's story and then told him he had the perfect solution. He told him, Joe, tonight when you go home, Start treating her like a goddess. Radically change your attitude and behavior toward her. Start doing everything within your power to please her. Listen intently when she talks. Help around the house. Take her out to dinner. Literally pretend she is a goddess. And then after two months of this wonderful behavior, pack up your bags and just walk out, and that should do it. As soon as Joe heard this, he thought it was a tremendous idea. Engstrom says, did I mention that Joe could be a real jerk? So that night, he started treating his wife like a goddess. He couldn't wait to do things for her. He brought her breakfast in bed. He had flowers delivered for no reason at all. Within a few weeks, they had taken two romantic weekend getaways. They would read books to each other at night. Joe listened to his wife like he had never listened to her before. It was incredible what he was doing for his wife, and he kept it up for the full two months. And after the allotted time, the psychologist gave Joe a call. Well, Joe, how's it going? Two months are off. Did you file for divorce? Divorce? Are you mad? I'm married to a goddess. (laughs) His change of attitude came as a result of his change of behavior. Because it was then he began to finally appreciate what he already had. You know, that applies to our life in Christ as well. We really may want to change, but we have to appreciate what God has already done for us, what we already have in Christ, rather than go searching for things elsewhere. Sometimes we can become so preoccupied looking at ourselves, comparing ourselves with others, grumbling and complaining about what we don't have or what we want, that we fail to recognize and appreciate What's right in front of us? And if we're not careful, we can turn our backs on what we do have in search of something we think is missing. But just as Joe didn't, want, didn't understand or appreciate his wife, he was ready to walk away from it. The Galatians didn't understand what they had in Christ Jesus. And Paul's concerned that they're ready to turn their backs on grace and go back into the bondage of the law and their old way of life because they couldn't realize that the law cannot save, it can only enslave. And Paul couldn't bear to sit back and watch while those he had led to the Lord were ready to turn back to that way of life again. You can almost hear the pain in his voice 
when he says he feels like he's going through the pain of childbirth all over again for them. In verse 20, he says he's perplexed about them. One version translated it saying he's so worried about them, he's at wit's end. And before they could go too far, he wanted to be sure they knew what they were ready to walk away from. And he starts off by saying, You are all sons or children of God, not through the law or your effort, but through faith in Christ Jesus. As he had been saying all along, you don't become a child of God because of what you do or don't do, or by affirming a set of beliefs, you become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And it may be familiar to many of us, but we need to hear that over and over again because the temptation is for all of us sometimes to think, now that we're saved by grace through faith, we have to do something about it. We have to work our lives away to earn it. The faith that saves us is the faith that stands in agreement with God. It's a faith that acknowledges God's love and God's goodness. It's a faith that confesses that We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we're separated from Him, and no matter how hard we try, how good our intentions may be, we're never going to be good enough on our own. It's a faith that affirms Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, that in love He took our place and paid the price for our sin. It's a faith that declares His victory over sin and death by being raised on the third day, and it recognizes that knowing that as fact just isn't enough. We have to do something with it. It responds to God through a decision to commit our lives to following Him. Faith is a commitment. It gets hold of God and His promises and won't let go no matter how we may feel at the moment. You know, many of us will struggle at times with questions and doubts and fears about our salvation, guilt over sin or feelings of failure, but in Christ there is the assurance that it's not about you. It's not dependent on you. It's based on God's promise and God's word. And for those who respond, salvation is a promise. It's not a question. And Paul makes a series of statements in these verses Stressing that assurance that we have in Christ. He says, in Christ, you are already children of God. You are already one in Christ. You are already Abraham's seed. You are already his children. You are already his child, his heir, and so much more. As evidence of that saving faith, in verse 27, Paul goes on to say, for you who were baptized into Christ, literally, you were immersed in him. We can take baptism for granted as just a ritual we perform from time to time. But for the people that heard that for the first time with Paul, it would have evoked a very powerful image in their mind of taking a white piece of cloth and soaking it in dye, say purple dye. The dye bonds with the linen. It becomes a part of it. And he says that's what happens with Christ. When we have faith, and are baptized, Christ becomes a part of our lives. Baptism doesn't save us or wash away our sin. That's what Jesus does. But it is an acknowledgement of that change, a statement that now that Christ has come, something has happened in us. We become what he says in 1 Corinthians is a new creation, which is why from the beginning, when someone believed in Christ, 
When they accepted him in faith, baptism became a natural next step. It shows that they are now immersed with him. Old ways are washed away and new ways begin. And just as he was raised, so too we are. Something we're planning for next Sunday as a mark that change has happened in the lives of those who are baptized. And it's not too late. If there's someone else who hasn't yet talked to me that would like to take that next step, talk to me today as we plan for next Sunday. Paul says those who were baptized have also clothed themselves with Christ. They've not just immersed themselves in him, but they've let him wrap himself around them. You know, in the very early in the life of the church, there was a practice that developed that when someone came up out of the waters of baptism, they would be clothed in a new white robe that signified new life. It showed that their sins were washed away, a visible way of symbolizing what had happened to them. And many churches today have moved away from that practice. The symbolism is still significant. And so we use white robes as a symbol of new life. John MacArthur points out that being clothed with Christ is a graphic way to describe how Christ's life, his presence, and his righteous nature envelop the believer. We take on his nature, and ultimately it is that which saves us, Christ living in us and encompassing us in his righteousness. And what would have been a radical, radical departure from popular thought and teaching, Paul says that because it is through faith that you become God's children, there's no distinction among those who are coming to Christ. There's no distinction made between those who are Jew or Greek. Slave or free, male or female, all become one in Christ. It means that among God's people, especially, there's no room for racism or sexism or classism, as we see in the world around us. The implication of the gospel that Paul catches so well in that one sentence would have been a slap in the face for the commonly accepted teaching and practice of his day a contradiction of what most Jewish men prayed every morning. And I discovered this week that some still do. It's still a practice in some parts of Judaism. They prayed, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile or a foreigner. But in Christ, Paul says, the wall of racism has been broken down. There's neither Jew nor Greek. The Jewish morning prayer continued, Blessed art thou, our Lord, our, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a slave. In Christ, Paul says, the wall of classism has been, demol- been demolished. There's neither slave nor free. And the last part of the prayer is, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. But in Christ, the wall of sexism is no more. There is neither male nor female. And if you were a devout woman, you to passively, were to passively accept your second-class status and simply pray, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has made me according to thy will. But Paul says, In Christ, the walls of separation are gone. We are all one in Christ. It would have completely undermined the argument of those who were trying to convince the Galatians to turn back 
to the law and the natural divisions that it created. There is no distinction made between those who came to Christ. Everyone came to God as a sinner in need of Christ, or as the old saying go, we all stand on level ground before the cross. Paul says you've been immersed in Christ, you've been clothed in his power, those petty differences which divide have been removed. There is no difference between Jew and Greek, slave or free, male or female. You are one in Christ. And not only that, you become an heir of the promise of God itself. All this, Paul says, is already yours in Christ. You don't work towards it or hope for it. It's yours. It's something to enjoy now. You know, in the U.S., legally, we become an adult when we turn 18 and we take full responsibility for our life in action. In ancient Israel, a boy became an adult on the first Sabbath after his 12th birthday. On that day, his father would take him to the synagogue and declare before everyone present, Blessed are you, O God, who has taken me from the responsibility for this boy. And the boy would pray, O my God and God of my fathers, on this solemn and sacred day which marks my passage from boyhood to manhood, I humbly raise my eyes to you and declare with sincerity and truth that from this day forward I will keep your commandments and undertake and bear the responsibility of my actions towards you. That's the bar mitzvah. And he became an adult. In Greece, a boy was under his mother's care until he turned seven, his father's care until he turned 18, the state's care until he turned 20, and then a festival was held called the Apaturia. His hair was cut off, offered to the god, and he became an adult. In Rome, it happened between the ages of 14 and 17, where the family would get together for a festival called the Liberalia. He would take off his cloak, where it had a narrow band of purple along the foot of it, and in its place he would be given one that was solid white. He would then be taken by his family and friends to the forum with his ball that he would place before the god to say he's put away childish things. Paul says in this passage, we've grown up. We've outgrown the law in a sense. As he begins chapter 4, he says the purpose of the law was to lead us to Christ, to show us how far short we fall. And like that trustworthy servant whose responsibility was to lead the children to their teacher until the time in which the child become an adult, Paul says that's happened for us in Christ when we have faith in him. Doesn't mean the law is no longer relevant, but it's done its job. It's prepared us. In the fullness of time, Christ came, and now we're in his care. We are his children. We are his heirs. Salvation isn't something we have to jump through all types of hoops to get into. You know, a car, traveler's car once broke down near a monastery late one night. He had no place else to go, so he walked to, the man walked to the monastery and he explained his situation to the monks there. They graciously allowed him to spend the night. They gave him something to eat, something warm to drink. They even repaired his car. But during the night, the man heard some strange sounds coming from the monastery. And so the next morning, he asked the monks about it. We can't tell you, they said. You're not a monk. 
The man was disappointed, but he thanked them for the hospitality. He went on his way. But that sound, he just couldn't get out of his mind. It haunted both his daytime and sleeping hours. Several years passed, and he happened to be traveling that way again, and his car broke down in the same place. Once again, the monks were happy to give him a place to stay, to feed him, to fix his car. And during the night, once again, he heard that strange noise that he had heard years earlier. Again in the morning, he asked, What was that night noise I heard during the night? The monks told him, We can't tell you, you're not a monk. The traveler said, All these years, I've been wondering about that sound. It's haunted my dreams. I have to know what it is. How do I become a monk? The monks explained, well, first you must travel the earth and learn to speak the language of every culture and tribe that exists in the world. Then you must go and do a kind deed for every man, woman, and child on the planet. And finally, you must climb to the top of the highest mountains and count the number of stars that exist in the heavens. And when you have done all this, you will be on your way to becoming a monk. Undaunted, the man accepted the task. Forty-five years later, he returned to the monastery, knocked on the door, and said, I've traveled the earth. I've learned more than 6,000 languages. I've performed kind deeds for nine billion people, and I almost froze to death on the highest mountains, where I learned that there are more than 17 trillion stars. The monks were amazed. They congratulated him, and they said, you're now very close to being a monk of the highest order. We will take you to the source of the sound. They led him to a wooden door where one of the monks said, the sound is right behind that door. The man tried to open the door, but it was locked. How do I open it, he asked. Well, first you must memorize the entire Old Testament, they told him. The man went to his room, and in a matter of a few months, he memorized the Old Testament. In return, he was given a key to the wooden door and then taken back to it. Upon opening the door... There was another door, this one made of brass, and it too was locked. To receive this key that will open the brass door, the monk said, you must memorize the entire New Testament. Frustrated, the man went back to his room to memorize the New Testament, and within a few months, he had the key to the brass door. Again, the monks accompanied him to the source of that strange sound. Inside the brass door, though, was another door, this one made of pure gold, and it too was locked. The monk said, this is the last door, but to receive the key, you must spend one year in the dungeon with only bread and water to nourish you. The man endured his year in the dungeon. Emaciated and weary, he was once again taken to the source of the sound. He unlocked the wooden door, the brass door, the gold door. With trembling hands, the man unlocked the door, turned the knob, opened it, Behind it laid the source of his sound, and without a doubt, it was worth all those years of suffering and pain. And you want to know what was behind it? I can't tell you. You're not a monk. (laughs) That's what Paul says the law is like. It offers all these promises to us. And there's one more door to get through. One more step you have to take. One more obstacle to overcome. And you never know whether it's enough. You can hope it's enough, but you're never going to be quite sure. But because of God's grace, he says, you don't have to worry about it. It's already yours. Jesus has already done it for you. The door is not locked. 
It's merely waiting for you to open. And Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock, and whoever opens the door, I will come in and be with him. And that's the invitation this morning as we prepare for our hymn of invitation and as we prepare for our baptism next week. If it's time to open that door, we invite you to do so, to to make a commitment to Jesus Christ as your Savior, your Lord. Our Father, as we come now to the close of this time of worship, we thank you that all the doors have been opened. And you hold out your arms, waiting to welcome each of us into your presence. Lord, if there is anyone that does not know you, that has not come to you, we pray that you will speak, that you will envelop them in your love in a way that they cannot mistake. And for the rest of us, God, that know that love, may we live with an awareness of what is ours in Christ Jesus through the faith we have in him and you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.